welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. For more information about our faith community, feel free to visit gatewaychurch.org.nz. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this message. Um, as a congregation, we have been in a series over the last several months, um, a rather ambitious series, uh, looking at the book of uh, Isaiah. Um, we've worked our way pretty much through the first 12 chapters of Isaiah, and uh, I've said a number of times, reiterate again this morning, that the major theme in those first 12 chapters is both judgment and hope for Judah and Jerusalem. So from this point, Isaiah seems to move his prophecies out in, in if you can kind of imagine, concentric circles. The inner circle is this first 12 chapters of Judah and Jerusalem. Then there's an outer circle, and chapter 13 in Isaiah marks Isaiah moving out into this outer circle where he begins to deal with Judah's neighbors, the surrounding nations. Um, if you have your Bible, you might like to note that the superscription on chapter 13, verse 1, that's kind of the introduction, is the same as chapter 1, verse 1. And those same superscriptions, they read, this is the vision God showed Isaiah, indicate um, slightly different units. Um, I've said, I said at the beginning, when you come to the book of Isaiah, there are two really clear divisions, chapters 1 to 39, and then chapters 40 through to the end of the book. But within those two major divisions, there are also sort of subunits. Chapter 1 to 12 is one of those units. Chapter 13, indicated by this same superscription as 1-1, indicates we're moving into a slightly different mode or a slightly different area of the prophetic. The key word of these next chapters, from chapters really um, 13 through sort of about 26, um, is an oracle or a burden. Isaiah is prophetically burdened for the nations that are around about Judah. Uh, and he begins to speak prophetically to those nations. Um, there are 10 nations addressed in this outer circle. Some of them are named clearly and specifically. Others are given kind of enigmatic titles like the wilderness of the sea, an oracle or a burden of Isaiah for the wilderness of the sea. And you kind of wonder who he's talking about. But as you, as you study it, it, it kind of becomes clear. So the nations that Isaiah begins to speak to are Babylon. He speaks to them twice, one in chapter 13, one in chapter 21. Assyria in chapter 14. The Philistines also in chapter 14. The nation of Moab in chapter 15. The nation of Syria, um, spoken to Damascus, which is their capital, in chapter 17. Then Ethiopia in chapter 18. Egypt in chapter 19. Edom in chapter 21. Arabia in chapter 21, and Tyre in chapter 23. Now, you'll be relieved to know we're not going to actually look at any of those, okay? I'm just giving that to you sort of as an introduction and, and kind of where the book goes. In, in brief, uh, th these chapters teach us that Yahweh is not just the God of Israel, but he's also the Lord of the nations. And these chapters also clearly indicate that God is united or the chapters indicate that um, are united in their depiction 
of God's widespread judgment on all human pride and military pretensions. God speaks mostly to Judah and Jerusalem's idolatry, but these nations, he really doesn't go after their idolatry. He goes after their pride and their arrogance. He is against human arrogance and stupidity. And so pride and arrogance are a recurring theme through these chapters. Here's just a couple of examples of many I could give you. For example, in 1311, it says, I'll crush the arrogance of the proud man and the haughtiness of the rich. In chapter 16, verse 6, we've heard of Moab's pride. How great is her arrogance of her conceit, her pride and her insolence, but, they, but her boasts are empty and the Moabites will wail. And then in chapter 23, verse 9, the Lord Almighty planned it to bring her, uh, down her pride and all her splendor and to humble all who are renowned on the earth. So he goes after these nations' pride and arrogance and their military pretensions. All of the nation's military might and political stratagems, no matter how shrewd and carefully wrought they are, are absolutely nothing before the counsel and wisdom of Yahweh. A bit later in the book, he's to say, these nations are just a drop in the bucket. Interesting, though, as just before we pass on from those nations, in classic Isianic tradition, while the overwhelming theme of this portion is judgment, there are also notes of hope included. It's not all doom and gloom, even to these godless nations. For example, in Isaiah chapter 19, verses 21 to 25, it reads, So the Lord will make himself known to the Egyptians. And in that day, they will acknowledge the Lord. They will worship with sacrifices and grain offerings. They will make vows to the Lord and keep them. The Lord will strike Egypt with a plague. He will strike them and heal them. They will turn to the Lord and he will respond to their pleas and heal them. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. Excuse me. And the Assyrians will go to Egypt and the Egyptians to Assyria. The Egyptians and Assyria will worship together. In that day, Israel will be third, along with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing on the earth. The Lord Almighty will bless them, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, Assyria, my handiwork, and Israel, my inheritance. Right from the beginning of Isaiah, we see that God is a God of the nations. Although he is... Although he has chosen the people of Israel, he chose them to be an instrument to reach the nations. In the Old Testament, I've said this before, but in the Old Testament, we could rightly say, God so loved the world that he chose Israel. They became, or they were intended in his purposes to become his means to bless the world. And although they failed badly and come under judgment, and the nations have failed badly and come under judgment, all the while, God speaks hope into situations. Now, with those very brief comments, I want to skip from chapter 13 through to chapter 24. Because from chapters 24 to 27, and you might like to read these when you get home um, for a kind of post-message homework, And while you're doing that, by the way, read Isaiah 40 for the next week's homework. So chapters 24 through 27 and chapter 40 are your homework. There will be a spot test. (laughs) Heaven or hell could be the result of the spot test, okay? We're going into the next concentric circle outside the nation. So the inner one is Judah, Jerusalem. The outer one is the 10 surrounding nations. From chapters 24 to 27, Isaiah moves from speaking to individual nations, and he throws the circle out and covers the whole earth. 
In these few chapters, chapter 24 through 27, the word earth is mentioned 25 times. So we've gone out even a further, uh, a, a, into a further circle. In this section, Isaiah seems to move into prophetically speaking about the end of the age. This is, the term is an eschatological time period, where he's speaking about the climax and close of the age, the end of history as we know it. This is the time when all his themes of judgment and hope come to their climax. So another key word in these chapters is the phrase, in that day. And if you've been studying with us through the book of Isaiah, I've said to you that whenever you see that phrase, in that day, you've got to put on your prophetic bifocals. Remember the bifocal glasses where the lenses are split so that for the most part you are looking down into the historical context that Isaiah is speaking to in his day. But when he says, in that day, you kind of lift your eyes up and you look through the top um, portion of the glasses and you're looking down through history. And in this period, seven times Isaiah says, in that day. And that's a kind of a warning for us to lift our eyes and say, he's not just speaking to that time, he's speaking to our time. And what would he say to us who are far removed, both chronologically and geographically, from the situation in which Isaiah is speaking? As you read these chapters, keep in mind two other books, the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation, because both of those two books really also are quite eschatological in their, in, in their material. They, too, talk about that day. As you look through those chapters, you'll see an amazing number of, of kind of parallels and allusions. There are at least 15 to 20 allusions in this portion of Isaiah to either Daniel or the book of Revelation. It's clearly end time in its, in its context. For, for example, I'm just going through this. In chapters 27 verse 13, it talks about a trumpet that will be blown. In that day, a great trumpet will sound. And if you're familiar with both Paul and John in the New Testament, they both talk about that day being marked by the sound of a great trumpet. Isaiah 24 verse 19 says, The earth is broken up, the earth is split asunder, the earth is shaken violently. Daniel, uh, sorry, John and Isaiah use this idea of the cosmos being absolutely shaken. If you read Revelation 6, Revelation 11, or Revelation 16, you'll see that the end of this age is marked by this violent upheaval. Isaiah speaks to that. He says also the sun and moon will be confounded or ashamed or changed in Isaiah 24 verse 23. The moon will be dismayed and the sun ashamed. Again, both Jesus in his Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 and John in the book of Revelation describe the end of the age in these terms. Now, whether they are literally physical or whether they are symbolic and speaking to something is a moot point that we're not going to discuss, but they're using the same terminology. The world is judged, Isaiah 24, 21. The Lord will punish the powers of heaven above. And in chapter 26, verse 21, the Lord is coming out of his dwelling to punish the peoples of the earth for their sins. The day of the Lord is marked by both ju judgment and deliverance. So um, 
Isaiah speaks to that. He says, death will be defeated. In Isaiah 25, verse 7 and 8, on this mountain he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all people, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. There will be the resurrection of the body. Isaiah speaks to that in chapter 26, verse 19. But your dead will live. Lord, their bodies will rise. Let those who dwell in the dust wake up and shout for joy. Your dew is coming like the dew of the morning. The earth will give birth to her dead. And tears will be wiped away. In chapter 25, verse 8, the sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove this people's disgrace from all the earth. So there you have it, a trumpet blown, the earth shaken, the, the heavens altered, the world judged, death defeated, resurrection of the dead, tears finally wiped away. This is all in these chapters. The issues and symbols that John both speaks to and uses are almost exactly the same as, as John does in the book of Revelation. Both Isaiah and John are depicting the end of the age. I, I find it fascinating that as you read the book of Revelation, as you know, we're going to be looking at it over the next month, but John uses the symbol of two cities to speak about the end of the age. He describes these two cities. One he calls the Great Babylon, and he talks about that city being destroyed. And then he talks about another city that he calls the New Jerusalem. That city is built and established. In this passage in Isaiah, he uses the imagery of two cities, one being destroyed and another being established. So you see the link between Isaiah as he's speaking eschatologically, and John as he's doing the same. You know, the Bible has sometimes been called, with apologies to Charles Dickens, the tale of two cities. So question, what are we to make of all of this? Well, I mentioned at the beginning of this series that Isaiah uses the imagery of a city to represent a community. When Isaiah is speaking and prophesying about Jerusalem, he's not necessarily literally speaking to that city. He's speaking to the community of faith that that city was supposed to represent. In chapters 1 through 12, Jerusalem and, Judea, uh, and Judah are a picture, a symbol of the covenant community, the community of faith. And in these chapters, as we've looked at it over these last few weeks, we see this community as it is and as it is called to be. And there is this unbridgeable gap between these two things. What they are actually and what they're called to be ideally is very, very distant. And of course, that prompts an immediate question. How will that city, that community, ever become this community? And that's what the book of Isaiah leads us toward. How will the people of God ever become the people they are called to be? So in this portion where we're reading about these two cities, and the same with Revelation, you have to see those cities as representing communities, two communities. Now the first city that Isaiah talks about in this section, the one that is destined for destruction, is unnamed. He doesn't give it a name. He calls it, in Isaiah 24.10, a city of confusion. Interesting that that word confusion is the Hebrew word tohu. Some of you will remember, right at the beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, God created the heavens and the earth. Verse 2, it became formless and void. And one of those words is the word tohu. This, is, this 
word describes the pre-creation chaos of the world before God touched it and ordered it. It was formless and void. And God speaks to this city and says, it's tohu, it's formless and void without my touch upon it. He calls it a lofty city in Isaiah 26 verse 5. A, a city marked by so many of the ones that he's just addressed by arrogance and pride. He describes it as a fortified city, a city that is isolated and inaccessible. This city that he is describing is a community, and it represents the, the human community in its godlessness and its rebellion. The, the human community resistant to God in its arrogance and pride. Now, John leaves the city unnamed. In Revelation, John, uh, sorry, Isaiah leaves it unnamed. In Reve Revelation, John gives it a name and he calls it Babylon, the great Babylon. He's not speaking about a literal city. Sometimes you read people talking about, uh, uh, you know, Revelation, and they talk about, you know, in, this, in Iraq, there's got to be a, a rebuilt city called Babylon. I think those people completely miss the point. They miss the nature of the language that John is using. In John's time, Babylon had become a symbol for the godless community of mankind in rebellion against God. So G. Campbell Morgan, one of the great scholars of the 20th century, said Babylon stands for the whole system of organized godlessness in the history of the human race. It is the spirit of evil, the mystery of lawlessness, which has been at work in every age. And John Newport says Babylon is best understood as the archetype of all entrenched worldly resistance to God. It cannot be completely identified with a certain earthly city or nation or institution. It represents the total culture of the world apart from God. Interesting, but in Revelation, John describes the city. He calls it the Great Babylon, but in Revelation chapter 11, verse 8, he says, the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, where the Lord was crucified. So he gives it four titles, the great city, Babylon, which he's been describing, Sodom, Egypt, and Jerusalem. You try and understand that literally and physically, you're going to get yourself into a tangle. It's not meant to be understood that way. It's a transnational city. It's every city and it's no city. He might have just as easily called it London, New York, Paris, or for that matter, Hamilton. It's the godless community of people in resistance and rebellion to God. Perhaps John Bunyan's Vanity Fair captures the idea well. This godless global community Isaiah says, is heading for judgment. And if you read this, you notice the comprehensiveness of the judgment. It starts off in Isaiah 24, verses 2 and 3, and says, See, the Lord is going to lay waste the earth and devastate it. He will ruin its face and scatter its inhabitants. It will be the same for priest as for people, for the master as for the servant, for the mistress as for her servant, for the seller as for the buyer, the borrower as for the lender, for debtor as for creditor. Those contrasting pairs are an idiom indicating totality. Everything's included. In the religious world, people won't necessarily escape, and it will include both priests and their people. Domestic status won't matter. Masters and their servants. Mistresses and their maids. Commercial status won't matter. You're not going to buy yourself out of the encounter with God's judgment. 
It will involve sellers and buyers, lenders and borrowers, creditors and debtors. So you see the comprehensiveness of this judgment. Verses 3 to 5 in that same chapter show creation wilting and withering under the influence of this godless community. And it seems like creation is like morally sensitive to its inhabitants. And the scripture says, the earth will completely be laid waste and totally plundered. The Lord has spoken this word. The earth dries up and withers. The world languishes and withers. The heavens languish with the earth. The earth is defiled by its people. They have disobeyed the laws, violated the statutes, and broken the everlasting covenant. It seems, and you've heard me say this before, but that the earth is a reflection of the people who live upon it. It lies defiled under its inhabitants. And in this verse 5, it says three things merit the judgment that, are about, that's, that, that, that they are about to encounter. Number one is they have transgressed the laws. This godless community are a people who have refused to live in and by divine revelation. They have violated the statutes. Some translations have they've changed the ordinances. The idea in the Hebrew is used to indicate replacing one thing with a completely different thing. This is a community that has introduced an innovative morality. We have said, no, we will not live by your laws, by your ethics, by your morals. We will change them. And I want to tell you, if there's a word that speaks to our world, this is it. Isaiah chapter 5 verse 20 says, This is a people who have called evil good and good evil. They've changed darkness for light and light for darkness, bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. We don't know up from down, folks. Just listen to the news. And, you know, you constantly sit there shaking your head, thinking, what kind of world are we living in? We don't know up from down. Much could be said, and I'm really tempted to say it. He looks at the clock and thinks, how long have we got? And decides discretion is the better part of valor, move on. They have broken the everlasting covenant. This amounts to a refusal to live in the fellowship that the goodness of God has opened up to them. With regard to that phrase, they have broken the everlasting covenant. You want to ask, what covenant have they broken? These people aren't included in the Abrahamic covenant. We're not talking about the covenant that God made with Abraham and his people. We are talking about the earth. So what covenant has God made with the earth? Where in Scripture does it talk about an everlasting covenant that God has made with the earth? Well, if you look at Genesis chapter 9 and verse 16... It says this is, this is the Noahic covenant. This is the covenant with God made with Noah after the judgment. And it says in 9.16, whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures of every kind on the earth. So here's a covenant that includes all people. It's an everlasting covenant. This is a new beginning. This, the, the words that God speaks to Noah here are almost the exact words that he spoke to Adam. The community has disintegrated to a point where judgment had to come. God saves Noah. He speaks new words, if you like, the, the rules of the game from 
Noah on. It amounts to a new beginning with a new set of rules. And it's clear that part of those rules had to do with reverence for life. This is emphatically stated in chapter 9 of Genesis, verses 5 and 6, where it says, And surely I will require your lifeblood. From every beast I will require it. And from every man, from every man's brother, I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. This is about a reverence for life. So when these people in Isaiah's time are accused of breaking the everlasting covenant, one of the things that Isaiah is saying is you've lost all reverence for life. It has been completely obliterated. It's every man for himself and the devil take the hindmost. And the judgment is about to fall as a result of these three things. It's fascinating that as you read through this passage, the judgment that Isaiah describes as a result of these people breaking this everlasting covenant looks remarkably like the judgment that came in Noah's time. We have a polluted earth, for example. In verse 5 of chapter 24, it says, The land is defiled by crime, and the people have twisted the laws. That seems to be almost a direct reflection of Genesis 6.11, which says, And the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. So what's, what Isaiah is doing here is pulling his readers, his listeners, back into Noah's time and saying, the parallels, see the parallels. The cosmic proportions of the judgment in Isaiah resemble the judgment of Noah's time. It's comprehensiveness. Buyers, sellers, creditors, lenders, mistress, maids, priests, people. It's comprehensive as it was in Noah's day when only Noah and his family were exempt from the judgment. In Isaiah 24 and verse 18, these words seem to link it again with with Noah's time where where Isaiah says, for the windows on high are open and the foundations of the earth are shaken. You can link that with Genesis chapter 7 and verse 11. The fountains of the great deep were broken up and the windows of heaven were open. Isaiah's tying his his readers back into this judgment time of Noah. I I don't think it's coincidental that when Jesus spoke about that age and the judgment coming, he referred to the time of Noah. In Matthew 24, he says, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark, and they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. So here's Isaiah and Jesus both pulling us back into this time of judgment at Noah's time. In keeping with that allusion to Noah's time, perhaps the second city that Isaiah describes in this passage, with its walls and the bulwarks of salvation, he says in Isaiah 26, we have a strong city, and God makes salvation its walls and its ramparts. Maybe that city is, in a sense, likened to the ark, the place of safety and refuge for the coming storm. And in Isaiah 26, 20, the people are exhorted, come, my people, enter your chambers, shut the doors behind you, hide yourself, as it were, for a little moment until the indignation is past. For behold, the Lord comes out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth 
for their iniquity. Again, you cannot help but see Noah's time where Noah took uh, where God took Noah and his family, shut them inside the ark, and it says the Lord closed the door and shut them in until the indignation was spent. Echoes here too, by the way, of Exodus, where the people were told to go inside their houses and the doors were closed and the angel of death passed over. So this city is destined for judgment. This godless community is destined for judgment, and both Isaiah and Jesus link it to the time of Noah, in the time of Noah. Now, the second city that Isaiah outlines is the divine alternative to the global city, and it too speaks of a community. Isaiah names the second city. The first one is unnamed. The second one he calls Zion. In chapter 24, verse 23, he says, The Lord Almighty will reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem. 25, verse 6, he says, On this mountain, Zion, of course, was a mountain. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all people. That's the same mountain that he mentioned in Isaiah chapter 2, in that vision where he saw all the nations streaming up to the mountain. This is the godly community in its ideal form. And if you want to know who that is, you, all you have to do is go to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22 and 23, where we are told in no uncertain terms what Zion is. You have come to Mount Zion, the writer says, to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly to the church of the firstborn. That is the godly community, the people of God, the new Israel, the church of Jesus Christ. That city represents the community of faith. In the book of Revelation, that city is called the new Jerusalem. John says, come, I'll show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain, great and high, and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem. The bride, the mountain, the city. This is a community there's so much to unpack in these chapters regarding the second community and the promises associated with it that honestly we don't have time just to start and, and, um, and to unpack it and to do it justice. Let me just read you a sampling of scriptures from these, from these chapters about this city. Isaiah 25, verses 6 to 9. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all people, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. In that day... They will say, surely this is our God. We trusted in him, in him and he saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. Isaiah 26, 1 to 3. In that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. God makes salvation its walls and ramparts. Open the gates that the righteous nation may enter, the nation that keeps faith. You will keep in perfect peace those whose minds are steadfast because they trust in you. Isaiah 27, verse 1 to 3. In that day, the Lord will punish with his sword the fierce, great, powerful sword, Leviathan, the gliding serpent. Leviathan, the coiling serpent. He will slay the monster of the sea. In that day, sing about the fruitful vineyard. 
I, the Lord, watch over it. I water it continually. I guard it by day and night so that no one may harm it. So much in those verses. Actually, in that portion, on that day I will punish with the sword Leviathan. That's speaking about God's final victory in the supernatural realm. The Leviathan is the Old Testament <coughs> excuse me, symbol uh, that's used to describe the devil. And finally, he will be destroyed. In, in the second part of that verse, it talks about another, a vineyard. Now, you'll remember, if you've been with me in the series, another vineyard that was described in chapter 5, where God poured his heart into the production of this vineyard. Everything that was needed to be done, he did. And he said, in the end, so disappointing, stink fruit. That's literally how it goes in the Hebrew. It produced stink fruit, so colloquial. And here Isaiah says there's another vineyard, though. God will have his fruitful vineyard. Here at the end of time, this community will have moved from the actual to be the ideal. In, in closing, the great challenge that these chapters hold for you and me is to which city, to which community will we belong? As much as we like to divide mankind into all kinds of groups using criteria from race, gender, economics, you know, the season that you were born, whether you're a baby boomer, a buster, Gen X, or Gen, Gen Y, or now Gen Z, you know, the Bible basically says there are two communities. Bottom line, there's, there's the community of God and there's the godless community. There is the holy city, Jerusalem. There is the Babylonian harlot. You are either a you're either a citizen of one or the other. Our citizenship is determined not simply by verbal allegiance. It's not enough simply to say, oh, yes, the godly community. I'm, I'm part of the godly community. Well, that's where it starts, but it cannot be left at that because it is the nature of these cities to shape us by their culture, to mold us into their image. And I want to ask, beyond which, beyond just simply your place of verbal allegiance, you know, yes, I, I belong to Jesus, I belong to the community of faith. Beyond that verbal allegiance, what city actually practically shapes your conduct and shapes your thinking? and shapes your ethics. Let me be blunt enough to ask you, does the way you use your finances, for example, look more like the consumerist culture in which you live, or is it shaped by the generosity of the kingdom to which you say you belong? I, I tell you, your giving patterns probably are a much clearer revelation of your inner allegiances than your outward professions are. Does, your, does the use of your sexual faculties look more like the godless community of which you are part? Are you being shaped by the way that it thinks about sexuality? Or is your life being shaped and marked by the purity and the restraints of the new community to which you say you belong? These are crucial questions. Does the way you raise your family or the way you treat your spouse differ in kind and quality from the selfishness, from the me first, from the I deserve it community in which you are part, a wider part, or 
is there something being shaped in you of the servant-hearted nature of the community to which you are now committed? Those are the questions, actually, that more determine your allegiance than your verbal professions. Which community are you taking your cues from in terms of the way you lived your life? Now, over the next month, we're going to get more into this, but the book of Revelation speaks about these two communities bearing a mark, bearing a seal indicating its ownership. In Revelation chapter three, verse seven, chapter, chapter seven, verse three, I'm sorry, we see the community of God, this godly city, being sealed. And that seal indicates authenticity, it indicates security, it indicates ownership. In Revelation chapter 13, we see the citizens of this other community also bearing a mark. There's probably not a person here who's been a Christian longer than three weeks who hasn't heard the phrase, the mark of the beast. And I want to tell you some of the things that have been written about this mark are straight out nonsense, he says humbly. Everything from credit cards to barcodes to implanted chip technology, you know, I'm sure, not that I heard it, but I'm sure there were some people who who suspected us profoundly when we introduced our children's check-in and we wanted a barcode for identification. I'm sure there was probably somebody who said, I'm not going to be part of that church, that's the mark of the beast. You know what, some stories regarding the mark of the beast would be hilariously funny if they weren't so sad. I had a man come to me once, not in this church, but in all seriousness, he informed me that he had thought of a way of taking the mark of the beast without, um, without endangering and impoverishing his family. See, he, he understood that the mark of the beast would be a physical mark that would be placed on either the hand or the head. And he came to me and said, Don, I have worked out a way. So I can take the mark of the beast, and yet when the crunch comes and people are unable to buy and sell without it, you know, I'll be able to buy and sell because I'll have the mark, but when the crunch comes and judgment comes, I've worked out a way that I can, that I can avoid being damned eternally for, for taking this mark. And I knew that I was going to regret this, but driven by insatiable curiosity, I said, How? And he informed me that he would take the mark on his hand and when the fateful moment came, he would amputate it. And I was truly stunned by an equal mix of the man's bravery and the man's stupidity. And I found myself saying to him, you'd better hope that they don't put it on your head. We'll explore this a little bit in the book of Revelation in our study, but I don't believe it's a physical mark. And we'll talk about why. But I believe both the communities that we are talking about are marked already. It isn't something that awaits a future time. It is something that is happening right now. You are being marked and shaped by the community to which you give your allegiance. Don't worry about the mark of the beast in the future. Worry about it right now in terms of the way you use your finances, the way you use your sexuality, the way you raise your families, the way you do ethics, because you are being marked and shaped by virtue of what community you are living in and out of. Arthur Katz said this. He said, I believe the mark of the beast is already taking place invisibly but indelibly. 
We are either taking the mark of the beast or the mark of the Father, and when the light comes, that is to say, the day of the Lord, it will reveal by its light which mark we have consistently taken. When you read the scriptures, one of the things you'll notice, as I said, is it doesn't divide us into all kinds of groups. It essentially describes two communities, the in-Adam community and the in-Christ community. A way of death, a way of life. A broad way, a narrow way. A way that is scattering, a way that is gathering. A way that will be brought to judgment, a way that ultimately will be justified. And my challenge to you today is what what city do you live out of? Of what city has, has your citizenship been rooted in? That's our challenge. And I think of the words of Joshua when he stood before the people of God and he said, choose you this day whom you will serve. As for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Choose you this day which city you will be part of. As for me and my household, and I want this to be a wide household, we have chosen that we will be part of a new community and we will allow by the power of the Holy Spirit a shaping process to go on in us to make us look more and more and more like citizens of that city. Thanks for listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. Again, check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.